girl who decides they want to become a news anchor, and they start lining up all the stuffed animals in the bedroom, and they create a prop microphone and start reading the news to the stuffed animals. And the truth is this, is that we live in light of our projected futures. We're future-oriented beings. What, what we believe about where we're going informs how we act now. And so the question that we want to ask is, where do we as Christians envision our future, both as as uh, individual people and as a, as a corporate people, where do we see ourselves? And the reason I'm asking this question is that there's a popular, if not prominent, view that I want to push back against uh, that we might call it uh, escapism, for lack of better words. Uh, and this view teaches that the ultimate goal for man is uh, separation from earthly creation. The basic idea of this, this uh, subset of thinking is that uh, the world is corrupt. God is sick of it. Christians are the only thing worth saving, and someday we get lifted off this rock uh, to have our, our heavenly existence. And, and, and many Christians, they view their future in light of this, and this means that they see some vague, ethereal, immaterial, uh, merely spiritual future existence. And the, the problem with this worldview is that it contradicts Scripture at every turn. This is not the orientation of Scripture. And by suggesting that God's creation is so corrupt that all he can do is junk it and scrap it for parts, is to suggest that the kingdom of darkness is more powerful than the kingdom of light. And so the truth is that man is not saved in abstraction from creation, not by pulling us out, but saved in the midst of creation, in a creation that looks forward to redemption. So this is where we're going this morning. And, and anything less than this, God, God, the goal of redemption is nothing less than the scope of the fall. And I'm going to say that again and again and again because I want you to hear that. As everything that was touched by the fall is marred and stained and will be uh, redeemed and restored and renewed. So anything less than that, I think, is a tragic reduction of the gospel. Uh, I have a professor. He, he likes to say it this way. He says, God doesn't make junk, and God doesn't junk what he has made. Now, the series that we've been going through here is on fear. And so I'm going to tie all these things together. We're going to try to, and it's going to—it'll be a knot by the end. Uh, but the series we've been looking at is fear. And, and last week, it struck me that Drew said that fear is—they uh, took polls, and it's at an all-time high since in, in the post-9/11 era. Anxiety, fear, and and uh, and worry is higher than it's ever been in that window. And last night, I was reading the uh, the Facebook year in review, where they chalk off the top ten articles discussed this year. So this isn't, you know, what they're putting out. They're just reflecting on what's already there. And eight of the ten were very negative, kind of downer articles. There's earthquakes and famine and shooting, uh, shootings and, and refugees and all of these situations. And so these are all fear-inducing, anxiety-increasing situations. And our constant exposure to them only compounds the problem. And so this morning, that's the fear aspect, which we're going we're gonna to deal with first, and then we're going to get to the hope, because I think hope is the only remedy to fear. Many Christians experience the fear um, that, that is palpable in our culture, and, and I think in a part this is due to a lack of focus on the hope that the Bible offers and presents. And so fear arrives when we don't know what or who is in control, or if we don't trust what or who is in control. And so in our first passage that we're going to pull up this morning, we see Jesus contrasting worry with faith and uh, I, so I'll call this he shows us the folly of fear this is 
he's showing you here's what fear can accomplish. So without any further ado, uh, we'll read, and I'm going to pause at the end of the next slide. Just heads up. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? Why do you worry about clothing? So we're going to stop there. Uh, actually, I meant to stop one sentence earlier. But So the first thing I notice here. So Jesus, I think fear, anxiety, worry, these all play on the same emotion. They come from this, They share a common source, if you will. And if I were going to talk about, you know, anxiety or worry, where I would start, I would say, don't worry about what kind of car you drive. You know, that's a secondary issue. But Jesus starts with primary issues. He says, hey, don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear, what clothing or shelter you'll have. I mean, it doesn't get any more basic than that. If there's anything that warrants actual legitimate fear, it should be those things. But that's the first thing Jesus talks about. He leads off with this. And so Jesus, his point here, he just says, look at the birds. They live off the land. They can't farm. They don't reap or sow. They don't plant things, but they're fed. God takes care of them. And, and the basic idea here is that if God helps something as small as a bird, how much more will he be willing to help and provide for you? And then Jesus employs a little bit of humor here, which I would invite you, by, by the way, to open your Bibles because I'm going to keep making points out of them, and one of them is in the footnote of your translation. And it's verse 27 here. Uh, verse 27 in our Bibles, it says, Who can add an hour to their life by worrying? Now, when I read that, I hear a small increment. It's who by worrying can add just this you know, little hour to the thousands of hours that you're alive. But if you notice in the footnote, what the original language actually says is, who by worrying can add a cubit to their height? Now, those not versed in ancient measurements, a cubit is 18 inches. And the difference there is that, that the difference is where I am right now, I'm preaching to you. If I had an extra cubit of height, I would not be here. I would be having a big NBA contract for $10 million. I'd be seven and a half feet. That's a big difference. But worry can't accomplish that difference. There's nothing that I can do with my anxiety that will make me grow. So it's a nice idea to think of it both in terms of small scale. You can't add a single hour to the span of your life, but also on a large scale, you can't accomplish that with worry. And so no matter what, uh, what your analogy, what your language is here, the point is clear. It says worry will not improve your situation. And then we continue, and he says, And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and is tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Now, this is one of my favorite images in all of Scripture, and I was uh, spending my sermon prep. I was Googling this. This is what you do for fun in seminary. I was Googling approximations of what King Solomon would be worth in today's economy. And the, the, I know. It's, my search history is the dorkiest thing you've ever seen. 
But the, uh, the, a, the plausible estimate, and this was a conservative estimate, had him at $2.1 trillion. $2.1 trillion. And, and the, the, the amounts of money, just, just try to comprehend for a second here. When Jesus says Solomon, this is what everyone thinks of, this amount of money. He received, not in, not in addition to uh, taxes and trades and all these other things, 40, uh, 20 tons of gold per year for his entire reign, over 40 years. 20 tons of gold. We, don't, we measure gold by the ounce for its value. He's going by 2,000 pounds at a time. That's a lot. So that's $900 million of gold by itself uh, each year. And so what's interesting here is, God sa- or is Jesus points to Solomon. He says, look at Solomon. And the, uh, the, the verb here for clothing is actually in the middle voice in the original language. And it's, it's saying, look, a 2.1 trillionaire, look how he could clothe himself. The best things he could wear, the best things he could put on himself, pale in comparison to a lily in the field, which God prepares. The lily exerts no effort on its appearance. God cares for it. He takes care of it. And it's more beautiful than anything money can do. And I really, really wanted to do some slides this morning. I couldn't beat Drew's Bengal angels from last week, so I didn't bother. But if you want to go look at how millionaires and billionaires dress themselves, you know, look at Steve Jobs and the black turtleneck and, you know, and the jeans and Bill Gates isn't much better. This is what money can't clothe you the way that God can clothe you. And so this is the logic that Jesus is employing. He says if God gives such beauty to something so insignificant, he even says the flowers, they're as far as the eye can see, and tomorrow they'll be ripped up and thrown into the oven. That's how insignificant they are. So how much more will God provide for something of more value? And then he goes on to say, he says, therefore do not... Worry saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive after these things. Indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. And the big idea here that Jesus is getting at is that worry and fear and anxiety are in contrast with faith. Worry, fear, and anxiety, to an extent, rely on my ability to control a situation. That's what creates fear. I mean, I'll speak personally. That's what creates fear in my life. When I think that I am in control of everything that's happening, I have to be very worried about everything that's happening because it all comes down to me. And that's a self, you know, self-centered view. And Jesus is trying to pry us away from that and saying, no, you rely on God. God provides better than you can provide, and you rely on him rather than yourself. And so fear can be a symptom of uncertainty or lack of trust. That's tacitly what it, what it can communicate. And I'm not talking about a moment of fear. I'm talking about habitual, you know, if fear is a defining aspect of your personality, then you really need to investigate where your trust is being placed. And so what we celebrate at Christmas is a proclamation of God's love over all his creation. The remedy for fear, then, is to focus on God who provides and the plan that he has revealed for us and for the rest of creation. And that's where we're going. So we looked at fear. That's the folly. It's fear doesn't accomplish anything. That's what Jesus says. Worry and anxiety will not get you. It will not advance your cause no matter what your cause. And the, the ultimate thing that drives out fear is hope. So we're future-oriented beings. And when, our fe- when fear is our future, 
we live in fear, we live in anxiety, we live in worry. And when we set our hope on the biblical hope that's painted for us, we can live a different life. And so that's where we're going to go next. And we're going to open Colossians chapter 1. Feel free to turn there. Although this is a dangerous one because I always give, uh, I'm used to giving, you know, people have their own Bibles. I tell them to circle things. Don't do that to the Pew Bibles. But, uh, but last week, Drew talked about victory. The victory uh, of the incarnation. And what Paul wants his, his readers now in Colossians to understand is the scope of this victory. Did he, did he just redeem a, a few things? Or is he going for something big or something more? And so when I was in school, I was always told that when a teacher repeats a phrase or, or repeats a word, they're trying to do that for emphasis. And it's something that you should hone in on for the exam. And uh, this morning, if you were to circle the word all, every, or whole in this short passage, you'd be circling at least eight things. So I'm going to read this here with, uh, with the emphasis that Paul's trying to drive home. This is starting in verse 15 says, he, talking about Jesus, is the image of invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, pop quiz. Is Paul talking about some things or all things? All things. All things, everything. That word is in there over and over and over again. And uh, in, in one of our Greek classes, we had to translate Colossians, and this was my favorite section because I didn't have to look up a bunch of words. I was like, got the one word, now we're good to go. It's just every other line. And, but see, once again here, we see the Bible rejecting the escapism that I talked about earlier. The emphasis on all things is to avoid any possibility of narrowing or qualifying the work of Christ. It's all things. He's reconciling all things to himself rulers and dominions, heaven and earth, everything. And so at times people try to quarantine Christianity to being in a realm of non-material things or, uh, or what they would call simply spiritual. Uh, and it's perhaps it's easier, it's safer, it's more manageable Christianity when it only governs one aspect of life. But the, the Christianity of the Bible that, that Paul's talking about here is a Christianity that touches everything in creation. And that's why... Um, the, I, I, I can't remember if I requested it, but I think it happened last week. The song, Joy to the World, with the final verse in there. He comes to make his blessings known. Does anybody know how far? Far as the curse is found. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And, uh, and in Christmas, we see the incarnation. And, this is, and here's a, this is a real point to consider when we look at Christmas. If the goal of Christianity were merely the spiritual, merely the non-material Existence and it wasn't concerned with all of reality and all of creation. Why in the world do we have an incarnation? Why does God the Son bind himself to creation? He enters into creation, takes on a humanly body. He's showing us that he's not given up 
on this world and on his creation. He's rolling up his sleeves and getting involved. And so this is the Christian hope. It's that what Jesus began in his first coming is what will be fulfilled in his second coming. Albert Walters, one of my, my favorite authors and theologians, he says it like this. He says, the first coming establishes his foothold in creation, while the second coming accomplishes the complete victory of his sovereignty. And the analogy that Albert Walters uses is D-Day. He says, Christ's first coming was storming the beach of Normandy. He lays claim to the land. He, this is the anchor. It's now unlosable. There's still cost to come, but we're assured of victory at, from this point forward. And so what Paul is teaching here in Colossians is that God will renew, purify, and cleanse this world of sin. And it's worth noting again that the scope of redemption in Paul's writing here is as great as that of the fall. Everything that is touched by sin, everything that is marred in God's creation is scheduled for renewal. So no part of creation will be exempt from God's renewal. And now this is the point in every sermon. In fact, I probably passed this point a few minutes ago where when you preach in seminary, there's a professor who sits in the back scowling. And if you go this long talking the way I have, he yells out, So what? Right? Because I've been up in the clouds so far. I know that. But the so what, we, we don't even have time to touch all the so what's. But I'm going to give you two things. The first thing is that this is how Jesus frames his ethical discussions. He's a future-oriented ethics. He says, look, when, when all, in the kingdom of God, when it's consummated, when it's, when it's full, you won't be murdering people. So you don't murder people now. You start living in light of the kingdom. You don't steal from people. You don't steal from people now. And it goes deeper than the Ten Commandments. You won't be destroying God's creation with your lifestyle then, so don't do it now. Be good stewards of God's creation. God's creation includes your body. Don't, don't destroy your body with lethargy and, and, and eating garbage and all these other things. You won't be doing that then, so you don't do that now. So all ethics for Jesus filter through that future lens. And when we keep that, that biblical hope in sight, we see that all of creation matters. Everything is up for redemption, renewal, and restoration. It affects every sphere of life, not merely a, a Sunday morning portion of it. And so now, since God has revealed his intentions for the earth, we need to act accordingly. We are his chosen agents of, of restoration. And the biblical hope for the world, we see this again and again in Scripture, is not the ascent of man, but the descent of God. The, the, the thrust of the Bible is always heaven coming down to earth, heaven restoring and renewing and rebuilding earth, uh, not pulling man out of it. And so now as people who have been reconciled, we're now agents of reconciliation. We continue the work of the kingdom until the day that Christ comes again. And this means that all work has been redeemed, not just church work. And I think this is the worst part of, of seminary for me. I have many, many good, devout Christian friends, and some of them are very competent theologians, who are very crestfallen at, at, that they can't go to seminary, they can't be in ministry, they can't participate in, in real kingdom work. And I try to rebut this attitude every chance I get. Because if that would only be true if we had a very narrow scope of redemption. But since all things are being redeemed, all things are being renewed, all work is kingdom work, all work is important. Whether you're a nurse or a lawyer, a banker, a teacher, 
or an engineer, you're part of the development and restoration of this world. Now, Al Walters, he says it like this. He says, the practical implications of God's renewal are legion. Marriage should not be avoided by Christians, but sanctified. Emotions should not be repressed, but purified. Sexuality is not to be shunned, but redeemed. Politics should not be declared off limits, but reformed. Art ought not be pronounced worldly, but claimed for Christ. And business must not be relegated to the secular world, but conform to God-honoring standards. And so every sphere of human life yields such examples. And so this is what we mean when we say that the scope of redemption is as great as the scope of the fall. What we see in God's original creation is peace, justice, harmony, and human flourishing. Are, that's the intention of creation, and that's what's being redeemed. And if you notice that all the words we use for these things all Im- Im- imply a buying back, redeemed, recreated, renewed, restored. They're all bringing back what was originally given, what was originally good and very good. And so Christ's reign is to be over all things, and he is now reconciling all things to himself. So as his followers, we're, we're agents of reconciliation, and we have this hope of what God is doing in the world, what he will do in the world, and what he's doing through us, and we enter a world that is full of fear. Fear is on the horizon for many people, and hope drives out fear. This biblical hope of what's coming, what God has in store, what God is doing, what he's been doing, is the only remedy for fear. And so as you go out this morning and into a new year, my prayer is that you would be filled with the hope that the gospel offers, knowing that God has not given up on this world, and neither can we. Would you please join me in prayer? Father God, we just thank you for your saints gathered together this morning, the opportunity to gather and worship and and celebrate all that you've done in our lives, all that you're doing in this world, and all that you will do. We thank you for the assurance and the the hope that's given to us in these words, and uh, just pray that we would be uh, agents of reconciliation to a, a world full of fear and without hope. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Amen.